0: Hello everyone and welcome to this, our sixth episode in our Great Sea Fights series. If this is the first one you've come to, please go to snr.org.uk and find our previous editions. Most recently, a three-part episode on the Battle of Saint-Mathieu of August 1512, one of the earliest engagements of the Mary Rose and possibly the first time ever that a naval battle was fought with cannon firing through gun ports. We also have multi-part episodes on the enormous clashes of battleships at the start of the 20th century at Tsushima and Jutland, as well as Nelson's finest hour at St Vincent in 1797 and the Battle of the River Plate from the Second World War, which features the legendary naval historian Eric Grove, who passed just a few weeks after that recording. Today we are crossing the pond and are looking at a ferocious single-ship action from the War of 1812, when the mighty USS Constitution engaged and destroyed HMS Guerriere. It is an extraordinary story. How did the United States get to a stage where not only could they build and maintain ships, but they could compete with And in the case of this battle, triumph over ships from the world's largest navy with centuries of shipbuilding expertise and naval tradition. It's a story that allows us to look into the complexities of what it took to build, maintain, man, fit out provision and send fighting ships to sea for extended periods of time. And how men could be recruited, fed, clothed and kept healthy in unhealthy environments. And all of this within the broader context of how and why Britain decided to go to war with America, even though Napoleon was as yet undefeated. And how and why America chose to pick a fight with the most powerful nation on earth. This special on the battle between Constitution and Guerriere will consist of four separate episodes. First up, we have a narrative of the events, so you can hear how those events unfolded. The second episode will present the eyewitness accounts of the two captains involved. Captain Isaac Hull of the USS Constitution, who described the events in a letter to the Secretary of the Navy, Paul Hamilton, and the after-action report of Captain James Richard Dacres to Admiral Sawyer. The third episode will present the work of the American historian William S. Dudley, who has explored the nitty-gritty of how on earth the US managed to create itself a Navy out of nothing, And the final episode explores the broader context of other single ship actions in this war. For this war of 1812 was very unusual indeed for the amount of single ship actions that took place, as opposed to fleet battles. And the historian Nick Kaiser helps us get to the bottom of that curious issue. The narrative of the events you are about to hear was written by and is also read out by William S. Dudley, a legendary and award-winning historian and exemplar to us all for his deep knowledge and historical rigour. Bill served in the U.S. Navy from 1959 to 1963. He was Director of Naval History and Director of the Naval Historical Center in Washington, D.C. from 1995 to 2004. And in 2014, he received the Commodore Dudley W. Knox Naval History Lifetime Achievement Award from the Naval Historical Foundation. Now, we do like to bring you the very best people on earth to talk about any particular subject, and certainly you have the best here with Bill. So here he is, reading out his own narrative. But let me add, before he starts, Bill, don't be embarrassed, that Bill is 85. And he has just written a book called Inside the U.S. Navy of 1812 to 1815, published by the John Hopkins University Press, which, needless to say, is outstanding. Bill, you're putting us all to shame. Now, please go and put your feet up. For everyone else out there who's listening, I do hope you enjoy this. I did hugely. So here is Bill.
1: The Great Sea Fight Between USS Constitution and the HMS Guerriere. On August 19, 1812, a furious battle erupted between two similar ships in the North Atlantic. One, HMS Guerriere, was a British Royal Navy frigate. The other, USS Constitution, was a U.S. Navy frigate. The results of this two-hour battle were decisive and far-reaching. The War of 1812 had just begun two months before. Some saw it as a renewal of the American War for Independence, which had ended by treaty in 1783. Yet this new war between the former mother country, Great Britain, and the young American nation was actually linked to the prolonged conflict in Europe between revolutionary France and Britain and their allies. The United States had claimed neutrality and was attempting to trade with both nations. However, neither could accept that this neutral nation was trading with its enemy for profit. Finally the United States, unable to find a diplomatic solution, declared war against Great Britain as the greater threat to American trade and the nation's continued independence. As background to the battle and its outcome, one needs to understand that although both ships were called frigates, there were significant differences between them. Among the various classes of warships, frigates were among the smaller. They were 3 masted vessels with square sails, and depending on the size of their hulls, they carried varying numbers of guns and sailors. As part of the fleet, they were not used in the line of battle. Their role was that of scouts, often referred to as the eyes of the fleet, to sail ahead, to discover the location and size of the enemy's fleet, and to engage smaller vessels. At other times, they would be used in close blockades of the enemy's coast, backed up by smaller vessels of 74 or more guns farther at sea. In this instance, Guerriere was a smaller, lighter frigate with 120 fewer men, equipped with less powerful guns than the Constitution. Guerriere was a fifth-rate, 38-gun frigate, measuring about 154 feet in length, 39 feet in width, and a hull draft of 19 feet. The ship was actually equipped with 49 guns, carrying 16 32-pounders on the spar deck, 30 18-pounder long guns on the gun deck, plus two 12-pounder long guns and one 18-pounder carronade used when needed. In the battle with Constitution, she was manned by 244 men and 19 boys. Her career began with commissioning in May 1800. After six years in service for the French Navy, she was captured by the Royal Navy frigate HMS Blanche and refitted for British service and commissioned as HMS Guerriere in 1807. For three years, she escorted convoys to and from the Caribbean based on Jamaica. In 1811, as relations between Britain and the United States worsened, the Admiralty assigned Guerriere to the North American station at Halifax under the command of Captain James Dakers. The U.S. Navy frigate was one of the original six frigates constructed under War Department orders and commissioned at Boston in 1797. Naval architect Joshua Humphreys of Philadelphia produced a unique design a frigate that was intended to be faster, stronger, and more powerful than the fourth-rate frigates used in foreign nations. Its length was 175 feet on the waterline, breadth 43 feet, with hull draft of 23 feet. Although rated for 44 guns, it was originally equipped with 52 guns, 20 32-pounder carronades on the forest deck, 30 24-pounder long guns on the gun deck and two 24-pounder long guns intended as bow chasers. As of 1812, Constitution was manned by 470 men, including 50 Marines and 30 boys. However, manning changed frequently with sailors being discharged and recruited at the end of each voyage. With these dimensions, the American ship was 21 feet longer four feet wider and had a four-foot deeper draft and with 187 more sailors on board than Guerriere. Owing to heavier ordnance, a larger studio hull and masting, Constitution displaced about 1,100 more tons than Guerriere. It is apparent that the American ship had the advantage of size, strength, ordnance, and manning over its British adversary. Constitution had fought in the Quasi-War with France, the Barbary Wars, and since 1807 had been an embargo patrol, searching for smugglers along the American coast. Captain Isaac Hall, who had assumed in 1810 and previously been captain of the Schooner Enterprise, the frigate John Adams, the brig Argus, and the frigate Chesapeake. His family had close connections to both the American U.S. uh, Army and Navy. His uncle, William Hull, was a Revolutionary War veteran who had risen to the governorship of Michigan Territory and would be appointed Brigadier General in charge of the Army of the Northwest in 1812. Isaac's father, Joseph, had served in the Continental Army as an artillery lieutenant and later years as a Navy agent in Connecticut. In 1811, while at Annapolis, Hull was ordered to get Constitution underway for a voyage to England, Holland, and France, carrying diplomat Joel Barlow, his wife, and several other passengers and government dispatches. This task he carried out, leaving in August and although unable to return until February 1812. Having been at sea so long, his ship was badly in need of hauling out, a cleaning and repairing of the copper sheets on the hull, and replacement of its sails and running rigging. The Secretary of the Navy ordered this to be carried out at the Washington Navy Yard, despite its distance from the sea. Meanwhile, the lack of diplomatic solution to these retentions between United States and Great Britain had led to war preparations in Washington and Quebec. The Governor General of Canada was well aware that if war broke out, it could lead to an American invasion of Canada and air hostilities at sea off its Atlantic coast. The Royal Navy had only a few ships of its North American squadron based at Halifax, while most of its fleet was on station, blockading the European coasts against France and its allies. The British Admiralty was not alarmed about the possibility of the United States Navy. It was comprised of only 16 vessels. Although, with many more ships on duty elsewhere, the Royal Navy could not reinforce its Halifax station until they became available. Only 20 of His Majesty's vessels were then available and active at Halifax. One ship of the line, five frigates, eight sloops of war, three brigs, and three schooners. The commanders of these two enemy vessels were relatively young, seasoned officers. Captain Isaac Hull was older at 39, the son of a merchant mariner who made frequent trading trips to the Caribbean. Hull was captain and co-owner of several merchant vessels during the period 1794 to 1798. At the commencement of the Quasi-War with France, he applied to the Navy Department and was accepted with a Lieutenant's Commission. Hull served first in the Caribbean and then in the Mediterranean, where, in 1803, he was given command of the Enterprise and then the Argus. Following their return to the United States, he commanded successively the frigates Chesapeake, President, and in an 1810, Constitution, giving him, all told, seven years of command experience and three in frigates. In August 1812, Captain James Richard Dacres, a scion of, the, of England's naval aristocracy, was 24, 15 years younger than Hull. Dacres' father and uncles were vice-admirals, and a cousin, Sidney Dacres, would eventually become admiral and the first sea lord. He joined the Royal Navy in 1796 at the age of eight, rapidly gaining experience. In 1804, he was appointed to his first command, the brig sloop Elk. Two years later, in 1806, he commanded the sloop of war Bahante. He returned to England in late 1807, but other ships not being available, he had to spend three years ashore on half pay. Recalled to active duty in 1811, he assumed command of his third ship, the, the frigate Guerriere, with orders to sail for Halifax. Altogether, Deckers had five years' command experience, only one of them in Guerrier.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkled down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am.
1: But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: President James Madison's June first, 1812 message to Congress alleged that by numerous provocations, It appeared that Britain was virtually at war with the United States already and that it was up to Congress to make a final decision whether to declare war or not. After a three-weeks debate, an unevenly divided Congress voted to declare war, with the Southern and Western Republicans voting in favor and the New England Federalists and anti-Madisonian Republicans of the Middle States voting against. The U.S. Navy's available ships had made rendezvous inside Sandy Hook to await their orders in Congressional decision. News of the declaration and Secretary of the Navy's sailing orders arrived at Commodore John Rogers' flagship, the President, on June twenty first. Within a matter of minutes, the combined squadrons of Rogers and Commodore Stephen Decatur hoisted anchor and were away. Secretary Hamilton, Rogers, and Decatur had discussed the strategy of using the Navy's ships. Rogers' view was that the ships should operate as one squadron to seek out and capture the British merchant convoys. Decatur advocated sending the ships out in pairs or to sail singly to avoid the Royal Navy's blockaders and to have a broader effect on the enemy's ships. Secretary Hamilton yielded to Rogers' argument but wanted the squadron to stay near coastal waters so that he could remain in contact. His last letter emphasizing this order failed to reach Rogers before he sailed. In any event, Rogers pursued his own plan of keeping the squadron ships under his command and sailed far to the east following the usual track of British merchant convoys. Captain Hull completed preparations for sea on July 5th and departed with Hamilton's order to join Rogers' squadron off New York, but this was an impossibility. Although unknown to Hull, Rogers' squadron was over 1,000 miles to the east. As a result, Constitution discovered a distant squadron of warships off the coast of New Jersey, but he thought they were American, and only after approaching them did he discover their true identity. At about the same time, their commander, Commodore Philip Broke, correctly presumed that the single frigate was American, and he pursued. This led to a prolonged, strenuous chase over a practically breathless sea, eventually broken by squalls, which enabled the Constitution's escape. From there, Hull shaped a course for Boston, knowing that Broke probably expected him to catch him seeking safe harbor at New York. He put into Boston long enough to send a message to Secretary Hamilton asking for further orders. Receiving none, and probably glad of it, Hull departed, having informed Hamilton that he would sail independently eastward in hopes of finding either enemy shipping or warships. Meanwhile, Tickers had joined the Broke's squadron off New Jersey, and participated in the Constitution, in the chase after Constitution. Soon thereafter, Broke dispersed his squadron and Dacres returned northeast for repairs at Halifax. During weeks of patrolling off Nova Scotia and Newfoundland, Hull captured some merchant ships and met with an American privateer brig named Decatur, whose captain suggested Hull sail to the south to seek out a British warship. Constitution caught up with Guerriere on the afternoon of the 19th of August. Captain Dacres understood that he would soon be attacked by the Constitution, which was approaching from windward and had the initial advantage of what sailors call the weather gauge. Both he and Hull cleared their ships for action and began maneuvering for advantage. This meant that the ship to windward could determine the timing and angle of attack, but it also meant that the leeward ship must endeavor to man, outmaneuver his opponent by twisting and turning his ship to gain the windward advantage. This maneuvering continued for about two hours when at about five PM, the Constitution was still in the windward position. Gurrier fired her starboard guns and wore around to fire her port broadside. Hull reported two shots hit his ship but did little damage. It was at this point that one of the Constitution's seamen shouted that their ship's sides must be made of iron since the enemy shot had failed to penetrate and appeared to bounce off, giving rise later to the ship's nickname, Old Ironsides. This was followed by another 45 minutes of maneuvering. At about 6 p.m., Hull set more sail, increased speed, and brought his ship alongside Guerrier's port beam. It was at this point that the gunfight began in earnest, broadside to broadside at close quarters. According to Hull, his enemies suffered the loss of a mizzen mast, which fell over the starboard quarter and damaged to his main yard, making the ship handling difficult. Hull observed his own ship was pulling ahead along the enemy's port side. This put Constitution in a position to turn to starboard and to rake the length of Gurrier across her bows, putting everything and everyone on her forecastle in danger. Then Hull opened the distance, wore, and returned to rake rake Gurrier again with this time with his port side. But then, some braces shot away and unable to control his topsails, Hull's ship lost steerage way. As were surged forward, she was unable to avoid Constitution, and the two collided. Guerrier's bowsprit foul in the rigging over the port quarter of Constitution, and this allowed Dacus' gunners to fire into Hull's cabin, setting it on fire. In the midst of this turmoil, Both ship captains called borders away for the crews to jump the narrow gap separating the two ships and engage in hand-to-hand fighting. This did not always occur as a heavy sea was running, with the ships rising and falling, discouraging the leap. Two of Hull's senior officers fell wounded. Lieutenant William Bush of the Marines was fatally so, and Lieutenant Charles Morris severely, but he survived. Captain Dakers was wounded by a musket shot in the back and many others of the British crew were picked off. Before boarders could set foot on each other's decks, the ships had drifted apart. By 6.30, Guerriere had lost her mizzenmast, her foremast, and mainmast. In such a condition, the ship lay helpless, unable to sail and at the mercy of her enemy. Hull sailed east of the Guerriere, and stood off while his sailors repaired running rigging and cleared the decks of the worst damage. He then returned to a threatening position close to his enemy and waited for a reaction. It came soon enough as Dacres fired a single gun to signal surrender at 7 p.m., two hours after the fight had begun. Ferriere suffered major damage along with 15 killed, including the second lieutenant, six mortally wounded, and 57 others severely or slightly. Constitution did not escape without damage, despite her larger size. Much of her standing and running rigging had been cut, the foretopmast and mainmast had been shot through, the gaff and spanker room and gig were smashed, and a large part of the captain's cabin had been ruined by shot and fire. By one account, the American... Crew suffered only seven killed and wounded, while a British source claims the Constitution's crew had nine killed and thirteen wounded. It was Hull's original wish to tow Gurrier into Boston as a prize of war, but this was impossible. She was too seriously damaged and lacked masts, making her very unstable, so Hull ordered her to be destroyed. This man, that the Assessors would be unable to arrive at a value for the prize. It was up to Congress to come up with a suitable cash award for Hull, his officers and crew. Hull originally requested $100,000, but it was not until March 1813 that the Congress awarded $50,000 for Hull. Why does this single ship action qualify as a great sea fight? To answer, one needs to consider the moral effect on defeat in the United States and Great Britain. In the United States, the land war had gone poorly. A British force captured the U.S. military post of Lake Huron's Mackinac Island. Three American armies attempted to invade Canada, and each had failed. And in the worst case, General William Hull's Northwestern Army had penetrated Canada near Detroit but he surrendered without battle to General Isaac Brock's army, fearing a massacre by First Nations tribes. American morale plummeted on hearing that news. Soon, however, the word of Captain Isaac Hall's victory over Guerriere had exactly the opposite effect. When Constitution returned to Boston, the nation was electrified by his reports that the frigate had captured and destroyed a British frigate an event that many had feared unlikely, given the Royal Navy's sterling reputation. This victory inspired celebrations, dinners, elaborate toasts, the to whole, and Constitution from Boston to Washington and beyond for many months. This was just the beginning. Other American naval victories were to come. As time passed, the story was retold, rewritten, and gained legendary status, often ignoring the differences in the ship's sizes, ordnance, and crew members. Many Americans came to assume it was a duel fought by equals, which it was not. Myths come alive as heritage when abetted by patriotism and nostalgia, which must explain why Old Ironsides is still honored as the oldest ship in commission still afloat, after her mooring in Boston, supported by the U.S. Navy. She is currently visited by thousands of tourists each year who likewise tour the nearby USS Constitution Museum. For the British Admiralty and the newspaper reading public, the reaction to the outcome of this battle was one of skepticism and disbelief. They were accustomed to British victories and not defeats. They had underestimated the sailing ships and sailors of the U.S. Navy, despite having seen them in their ports and in operation in the Caribbean and the Mediterranean. This first frigate defeat brought criticism of the Admiralty in Parliament and within the Royal Navy itself. The disappointment redoubled after the loss of the frigates Macedonian and Java later in the year. This faded with time as more realistic and sanguine views prevailed among the British public and the papers. The Admiralty strengthened its blockade of the American coast in the following year and ruled that its frigates must not take on a U.S. 44 gun frigate in single combat. The initial impact of the Constitution Guerrier engagement was significant on both sides of the Atlantic and wrought changes in the public's attitude toward the war in general and the navies in particular. In that sense, if no other, this battle can be considered a great sea fight.
0: thank you all so much for listening do please follow us wherever you engage on social media on twitter facebook instagram or youtube do particularly take the time to search out the videos we've been releasing on youtube some wonderful innovative stuff there, bringing the maritime world to you as never before if you're listening on an iphone please take a few moments to rate or review the podcast it does make a huge difference but best of all please join the society for nautical research at snr.org.uk it doesn't cost very much but it supports this podcast you get four printed journals a year you can sign up to come to our annual dinner on board HMS Victory a wonderful event that is too and it supports all of the worthwhile goodness that the society does to publish the world's most important maritime history and to preserve our maritime past.